Now, the Holy One of Israel, where do we get that thought? And can someone, I, I also have a question about the, the design. I'm picking up on it, and I'm thinking, I'm saying that this is like God's holiness coming on the tree, and it's giving it life. But where there's not holiness, it dies, and it's destitute, and the other is flowing and nourishing and life-giving. Is that essentially it? Well, you know, art is interpretive, right? So, <laughs> so that's it for me. I don't know what it means for you. You know, what you may see may not be what I see. Um, but that's what I see that's there. And there is a great deal of truth to that. Look with me at the book of Isaiah in chapter 41. Isaiah 41. And because this idea, Holy One of Israel, what does that come from? Um, notice, if you will, in, really in Isaiah 40, there in verse 25, it says, To whom then will you liken me, that I will be his equal? It, it communicates here, that I would be his equal, um, says the Holy One. Then it comes up again, notice chapter 41, Do not fear. It's clear here, do not fear, he says, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord, or declares Yahweh, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Then we see it again in verse 16. It says, you will winnow them, and the wind will carry them away. That is your enemies, um, and the stone will scatter them. But you will rejoice in Yahweh, you will glory in the Holy One of Israel. So a beautiful title of God himself, and we're going to dive into this further and what this means. Really, when we think about God's holiness, God is separate, God is distinct. Uh, God is a God of absolute purity, impossible for him to fail in any way. And when we think about the holiness of God, we have to have a picture of the, the glory of God. And the glory of God is this. It is uh, the summation of all of God's perfections. This is the glory of God. Some may think, well, the glory of God is an attribute. It is not. Um, when we think about the glory of God, it's the sum of all of those perfections together. And that's why at times we see in Scripture, uh, say, for instance, um, God, well, Moses to God, let me see your glory in Exodus in chapter 33, 34. And then God says, okay, you will see my glory, but not all of it. And then when God passes by, God makes a pronouncement of himself, and he communicates some of his attributes. So in at times we see God's glory manifested um, in physical ways. There was the glory that was in the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory. Uh, that was in the tabernacle itself. Uh, and the glory of God representing even how God operates and, and what he accomplishes. Uh, you can see it on the negative side through Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar comes onto his housetop and he looks at his kingdom and the splendor of it. And he says, look at all my glory which my hands have made. So there he's looking at his glory and he says, look at the sum of all of my accomplishments. So when we think about God and we can say, well, what is the glory of God? It's the 
sum of all of his accomplishments. It's the, the idea of his perfections that can be seen together. And sometimes those perfections are manifest in a physical way, the Shekinah glory. And that's why perhaps um, even the psalmist in Psalm 19, he says the heavens declare the what? The glory of God. How are they declaring the glory of God? Because you look into the heavens and you see the splendor of God in his creative hands. And how is it that the heavens maintain their balance? How is it that the heavens are, um, as far as uh, scientists are concerned, in some ways uh, immeasurable? Because that's the glory of God being displayed. And that's the glory of God because God, when he spoke the heavens into being, it was absolutely effortless for him to do that. It was simply God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be light, and in fact there was light. That's a reflection of the glory of God. And, and one reason that I even enjoy coming out to places like this, and I'm probably going to over the weekend find a spot to get away from some of the lighting, is to look into the heavens and see the glory of God. Now, where we live, we're about actually from L.A. proper in Canyon Country, Santa Clarita area, you probably familiar with that, you know, Magic Mountain area. And there's still light pollution that comes from Los Angeles and even in Santa Clarita. You have to get away from it all to look into the heavens and to see the glory of God in sort of a pristine way. And um, in a couple of weeks, um, we actually have our retreat for our fellowship group, and we're going to go out into the Mojave Desert area, high desert area, actually called Newberry Springs. And there is something that we do that's a tradition. On one night, we have this huge, um, what we call a hayride, and we take turns, and we go even further away from the camp area, out into the desert, and you look into the heavens, and you say to yourself, oh my, there is the glory of God. And uh, to see that is a wonder. And you realize that this same great God is the God that cares for me. And even as we sang earlier, he is in fact Jesus the Messiah. He is that ransom that has come from heaven. He is the one that would give his life as a ransom for many. He is the one that the scripture tells us he did not come to be served, but to serve and in fact give his life as a ransom. So it's a wonderful picture of God. So someone even asked me um, at when we were having dinner, well, how do you come up with these topics um, when you speak in different places? I said, well, often I'll just ask them, is there something you'd like me to address? Is there a need? And um, then ideas are thrown back and forth. And, and someone did mention, I forget who it was in the email chain, that I noticed that you had been going through a series in Isaiah. And it's really just Isaiah 40 to 48. And they said, well, maybe you could do something that addresses the holiness of God and living and an unholy world. And I said, well, that's great. So that'll help me expand even my thoughts about Isaiah. And that's what we're going to do over these next sessions is get some big pictures of God. And if we can give a large picture of God, that should help us uh, be motivated to live our lives accordingly. Here is God that's great and holy and separate and distinct. Here is God, a God of perfection, and how can I not live for him? Why would I uh, be so attracted to the things of the world? Why would I want to gain my satisfaction from the things of the world when I can gain satisfaction from the living God who would give his life for me?
and not only give his life for me, but we have to put that in context. Uh, we have to think about who is it that gives his life. He is, in fact, the Holy One of Israel, a God of distinction and perfection. And so what I want to do in just uh, maybe probably just only about 15 more minutes or so here, give you the big picture of where we're going to go in these sessions. Now, we're going to look at nine. There are nine sort of um, major passages that are going to walk us through some, I think, serious um, text from Isaiah that gives us a big picture of God and his holiness and his glory. And the first one would be this. And all of them will start in this way. There's some sense in which we need to stand in awe of God. So every point is going to start with stand in awe of. Stand in awe of. And if we can stand in awe of God, like um, Isaiah the prophet did, then we can be properly motivated to live the Christian life the way that we should. All of us need motivation in life, do we not? Of course we do. What's going to propel us? What's going to cause us to maybe keep some late hours? What's going to cause us to work harder? What's going to cause us, you know, as a mom to, to put in that extra effort with the kids or as a dad or as a single person? What's going to motivate you to remain pure? What's going to motivate you to strive? If some of you are right now, you know, at the university, how can I do my best to the glory of God? How do I think about my future? We need motivation. And, of course, the motivation that we all need apart from career and even family life, how am I going to be motivated simply to live the Christian life? I mean, to live it appropriately. The way that I've read about, the way that I've heard in other retreats, uh, the way that I've um, you know, seen on blogs, how do I live that? And I think you have to stand in awe. Something has to inspire you. And so we're going to look at these nine places of awe for God. And number one is this, stand in awe of a holy Savior. Stand in awe of a holy Savior, Isaiah chapter 6. And we're just going to, I'll give you a trailer for each one of them. So think about it that way. Each one of them is not even a full trailer. It's more of a teaser, okay? So each one will be a teaser. And Isaiah 6, a lofty picture here and in the year of King Uzziah's death, he sees Yahweh on the throne of, of his own throne, that is lofty, exalted, seraphim are around him, and yet they're calling out something that we're too familiar with. And, and, I, and I say that on purpose, too familiar with, because at times we hear God is holy, God is holy. But what does that really mean? Pause for a moment and consider God's holiness, and this is what's crying out by these creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there's that word glory. So what does that mean, that the whole earth is full of his glory? I look around, and I see wickedness. And Isaiah surely would have seen wickedness because the people of God have been disobedient, and they're going to be chastised even by the nature, by the other nations. How can there be glory in all of the earth. Well, we look around, and even despite what is happening in society today, um, the earth is full of his glory. And one day, the earth will be purified, and we'll see it from the standpoint of an earth that is pristine and an earth that perfectly reflects the glory of God. But for now, we see it tainted, if you will. 
And notice he says, is the Lord of hosts. And I just remind you of something not right now in that teaser. He is Yahweh of armies. And that's important. I, I'm before this Yahweh of armies and his glory is throughout all the earth. And then he makes this statement in verse 5, woe is me. That's an incredibly important word, woe. And we're going to look later on. And why is that word so important? Especially, uh, and have you to look ahead, we're going to see through Isaiah this idea of constantly you're seeing woe, woe, woe. God is going to bring about destruction. God is going to bring about judgment. So there are all these woes that take place. And then there's going to be a turn that's going to take place in Isaiah in Isaiah, actually in Isaiah 55, the same word, but then that word is going to be translated, ho! And it's going to be a call for everyone who recognizes their state of being in woe, if they would recognize that, then they can be healed, and they can be saved, and they can be forgiven. And of course, the response, even as we heard earlier, is that God, now that I stand in awe of you, what is it that you want me to do? Here's a second way in which we should stand in awe in the book of Isaiah. We're going to skip ahead to some chapters. Stand in awe of an intimate Savior. So not only is he a holy Savior, but he is an intimate Savior. Look with me, Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, he in fact is an intimate Savior. How do we see this? Well, notice what it says in Isaiah 41.10. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's intimacy. I'm with you. We even sang earlier this Jesus Messiah, Emmanuel. God is with us, and he is communicating here. I'm with you in an intimate way. And notice the language is of upholding them and taking them by the hand. Look at Isaiah 42, still under this heading of an intimate Savior. Isaiah 42 and verse 6, he says, I am Yahweh, I've called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and a light to the nation. So again, intimacy that comes from this great God. Here's the third way in which we can stand in awe. And it is this, stand in awe of an exclusive Savior. He's an exclusive Savior. And when we come to this, we're going to make some connections between Isaiah and the Gospel of John and look for a moment at the I Am statements in John and how they're connected to um, the prophecies in the book of Isaiah itself. But to give you some sense of this thought, He's an exclusive Savior. Look back to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, and then in verse 18, and it says there, To whom then will you liken me? Or what likeness will you compare with me? And he's obviously making a statement that says, Is there any other God like me? Is there anyone that compares to me? And it's a question that expects only one response, which is no, absolutely not. Why would we even consider it? And you have to think about in context, why does he bring this up? Because in context, the people of God are relying on idols. And and obviously the nations are relying on idols. And now Judah is going to rely on idols as well. Perhaps thinking maybe the idols of Babylon are greater than Yahweh. And God has said, absolutely not. 
How dare you make a comparison between me and these idols? I'm an exclusive Savior. And remember I said we make a connection between John and Isaiah because one of the most pronounced examples of this in John is John 14, 6. And Jesus Christ said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. What does it say? Except through me. Exclusive, absolutely. How about a fourth consideration, a fourth way of standing in awe of God? And it is this, stand in awe of a protecting Savior. He's a protecting Savior. And it makes sense because of everything we've already said. Um, surely he would be a protecting Savior. In one sense, that's the implication of even all of these other thoughts. Isaiah 41, verse 13 and 14, he says, For I am the Lord your God, or I am Yahweh your God, who upholds you, upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. I will help you, declares the Lord God. So I am, in fact, your protector. Here's a fifth consideration for us. Stand in awe of a sovereign Savior. He is sovereign over all things. Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45. How is he sovereign? Well, let me tell you. Isaiah 45 is going to be in Isaiah 40 to 48, the first time when we see a bit more detail where God says, I have a servant. Now, we need to understand um, in Scripture, at least uh, from the perspective of Isaiah, he's going to highlight servants. Okay, there is one servant, which was Israel, Judah, and they failed. Um, there is a servant, which is going to be Cyrus, who is going to come, and he's going to free the people of God from Babylonian captivity. And then there is a servant, the Messiah, who is superior to all. So three servants. Uh, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant. There is Cyrus, the servant used by God. And there is Israel, the servant who failed, and they need salvation. So how is that speaking to his sovereignty? Because God controls all things, all peoples. So God is going to take this Persian, and he's going to raise up the Persian Empire, and the Persian Empire is going to conquer the Babylonian Empire, and that's God's sovereign hand at work. It's essentially God saying that I control every individual. You are created for my will. And notice verse 9. I said that word woe is important. Notice verse 9. Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, to what are you giving birth? And, and that's a simple statement in one sense. What he's saying, how dare you quarrel with me? I have the right to do whatever I please, whenever I choose to do it. I'm sovereign over all things. So he's a sovereign savior. Look at, uh, here's a sixth consideration. A sixth way in which we can stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of an obedient Savior. An obedient Savior. Look at Isaiah chapter 50. He was an obedient 
Savior. Notice, if you will, verse 5, it says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Let those words sink in for a moment. This is obedience. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. This is Christ saying that I allowed my back to be brutalized. This is Jesus Christ saying I could have hidden my face from strikes and from spitting. I could have turned the other way. I could have fought back. But indeed, I was not. I did not because I'm obedient. Number seven, uh, a big picture as we kind of go through the clouds here in Isaiah, stand in awe of a sacrificial Savior. He's sacrificial. Isaiah 52. Wonderful passage, and we'll have to spend some time here. And the suffering servant passage. Now, um, chapter 50, as we just noticed, is looking at that suffering servant. And we see the suffering servant here again. And how does it begin? Um, wonderfully in verse 13 of chapter 52. Behold, my servant will prosper. Remember I said there were three servants? Here is the servant Jesus Christ. There is the servant Israel Judah. There is the servant Cyrus. And now this servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And of course, it goes all the way through chapter 53, verse 12, giving us indications of his brutality that he experienced. But yet, like Isaiah 50 said, he gave his back to beating. He did not hide his face from humiliation. And verse 14 um, is always a wonder to me. It really is. Um, The language... You know, as it says, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. What is that communicating? If you were to come near my office, you would see this in a Hebrew text, just this verse. Um, I have stood in awe of this for, let's see, when I was doing my... THM degree, and I was taking a class on soteriology. So that's 2000. I think that would have been 2000, maybe seven or eight. So I'm 15 years of standing in awe of this verse. Why? Because a part of my project that I chose, I went through and translated through Isaiah 52 and 53. And I thought I understood it until I dove into it. And verse 14 stood out to me so much, and that's why it's, you know, framed in near my office because of what it communicates. And when he says here, so his appearance is more than man and his form more than the sons of man. He was marred more than man, his form more than the sons of man. It communicates that he was uh, brutalized so much 
that he would not look like a man. Interesting, in verse 14, it says, Just as many were astonished at you, my people. Why that language? Because remember, at this time, um, Israel would have been humiliated. They're not the nation that they were. So people would look at them and say, What happened to you? What happened to your temple? It, it's, it's torn down and it's burned down. What happened to your treasuries? Your treasuries are emptied now. Uh, what, what happened to your kings and all the royalty? All of that is gone. So what he's saying here is just as many were astonished at you, my people, others would look at you and say, what happened to Judah? You're not that great nation. And he says the same thing. People would look at Christ and say, what happened to him? Who is this? I remember seeing him and he taught and he healed people and he seemed to have done good all of his life. What happened to him? And that's why he's marred more than any man. So his, far, his form in the language is saying he would be far from man. So if we can't stand in awe of that, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what I can give you. I really can. If you can't pause for a moment and think, oh my... Uh, that the living God would do this for me and he would allow himself to be brutalized. But I need something else to motivate me. It's just not enough. No, I can't give you anything else. I just can't. Oh, and, and I would refuse to give you anything else because then you'd be improperly motivated. Here, here's an eighth way for you to stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of a gracious Savior, a gracious Savior. Look at Isaiah 55. You remember I said these words, whoa, 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 whoa. And then in Isaiah 55, it changes. Notice the first word in Isaiah 55. It says, ho, here it translated with this exclamation point. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the water, or thirst, comes to, come to the waters, and you have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money and without costs. Come. How, how can you come without money and without costs? You can come because the servant was marred, because the servant was brutalized, because the servant gave his life. He's a gracious God. We'll also look at Isaiah 57 and Isaiah 58 as well. In Isaiah 57, notice just briefly what it says here. Here's a God that is high and lifted up in verse 14. He's exalted. Notice what it says here, especially because of this word holy. In verse 15, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and holy place. But also, what is so important? Notice what he says. But also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. That's God's graciousness. And then here's our ninth look of God's glory and God's holiness. It's this, stand in awe of a completing Savior, of a, of a completing Savior. So think with me. So he's a holy Savior. He's an intimate Savior. He's an exclusive Savior. He's a protecting Savior. He's sovereign. He's obedient. He's sacrificial. He's gracious. 
But then here he, complete, he completes Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, and it's really verses 17 to 25. Because what do we see here? How do we know he's a completing Savior? Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. I'll just look at one of those verses now. All things are going to become new. Um, this world is sin-stained, and there the stains of sin even in creation itself. And regardless of how beautiful it is in this area, it is still stained with sin. And one day, the creation itself, in fact, will be perfect. And what I love about what um, verse 17 says, the former things will not come to mind. We'll have no remembrance. Those that know the Lord will have no remembrance of failure, of sin. All of it will be gone because he is a completing Savior. So it starts with his holiness, and it's going to end with his completion. And if we can stand in awe of that, then that's going to motivate us to live in an unholy world. All right? Uh, Father, thank you for these words. Um, and I pray that over this weekend we can stand in awe of you. And as we consider uh, these texts later, some in more detail than others, that we would be truly inspired. I pray for everyone here that you give them ears to hear as they fellowship with one another, that it would be encouraging. As we sing, that it would be edifying. As the word goes forth, that they would hear and then have hearts to obey. In Christ's name, amen.